The second half beckons, and lots of teams are looking for help from their farm systems. We'll talk prospects with Rob Gordon, minor leagues analyst with BaseballHQ.com, next on Baseball HQ Radio. by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Here's the pitch on the way. A swing and a foul. Left field. Way back. Blue Jays win it. The Blue Jays are Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of July the 14th. The second half is underway, and this is show number 26 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to Rob Gordon, the minor leagues analyst with BaseballHQ.com, we'll have our regular contributors from the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League analyst is Harold Nichols. Our American League analyst is columnist Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse commentator this week, talking about why a good trade negotiation is kind of like a rundown play. In our regular minor league minute, Rob Gordon does double duty, looking at Yankees outfield prospect Tyler Austin, And in his master notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talks about better ways to pick those all-star teams. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? 19 teams are within two and a half games of a playoff spot. We gotta talk some baseball. And the first inning of our show, our League Watch News reports. Matt Beagle is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League report. And the Director of Skills Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. After the All-Star break, we head into the second half. And uh, one of the guys we're looking at for a good second half, according to Stephen Nickram, the starting pitcher's buyer's guide columnist at BaseballHQ.com, is in Milwaukee. Uh, What does he like about Marco Estrada? You know, Marco Estrada is a guy we talked about before. Here's a guy with amazing skills. A 5.5 command ratio, striking out almost 10 batters per nine innings. Excellent control. Uh, expected earned run average in the first half of 3.21. The only thing that kind of kept Marco Estrada off of everyone's radar is a 4.06 ERA. And that's been caused by a tendency to give up home runs. Uh, looking at a 1.9 home runs per nine innings. So a lot of home run balls, 17% home run per fly rate. That some of that should come down on its own, although I think we really probably do have a little bit of a home run issue with Marco Estrada. But here's a guy with incredible skills, excellent dominance, great control, um, does give up a lot of fly balls, uh, only about a 31% ground ball rate in the first half. So uh, a lot of fly balls uh, and uh, a tendency for those to leave the yard, which keeps that ERA up. But here's a guy who could really shine in the second half. Yeah, he re- it reminds me of one of those uh, Nick Rand columns that he does every so often called One Skill Away, where, where he looks at a pitcher who seems to have everything he needs to be a uh, borderline elite or an ace-level pitcher, 
but he's got one skill that he hasn't quite mastered. And in this instance, it could be keeping the ball in the yard is as simple as that. Milwaukee's a, a toughish sort of park for home runs, though. Yeah, it is. Milwaukee's a good place. I mean, there's certainly some parks he's going to go into where you're going to worry about this guy in Houston or in Arizona, uh, places where with that many fly balls are going to get him in big trouble. But but uh, his own, own home park should be decent, uh, and uh, he'll have a limited number of uh, exposures in those other venues. So I think Marco Estrada looks like a good bet for the second half. Certainly not a guy who's going to hurt you. A 4.06 ERA isn't all that bad, uh, and you could get a lot better than that. You have to like that 1.02 whip as well. Uh, it's a, certainly an indication that this is a guy who's got uh, pretty good command of the strike zone. His uh, strikeout-to-walk ratio so far this year has been really good at 5.5. He's not even walking two guys per nine innings. So everything you want in a pitcher seems to be here. Uh, in Milwaukee also, however, Nick, Ricky Weeks, a second baseman, a fairly high draft pick in a lot of drafts, went for a good dollar in most auctions, I expect. And so far, the return just hasn't been there. No, it hasn't been there. I mean, we're looking at a 199 uh, batting average right now uh, after half a season of baseball, and that's not at all good. And that's after hitting 272 over the last month. So Ricky Weeks has really been struggling. The problem has been a, a horrible hit rate. I mean, his hit rate just has been uh, incredibly low. It's a, currently 27% for the first half, but was much lower than that for most of the first half. Uh, and, and that's kept everything pulled way down. Uh, but a, a guy, even even in that, showing uh, in the first half uh, decent power, decent speed, uh, we know those things are there. Eight home runs in the first half, six stolen bases, uh, certainly a lot a lot more than that's probably waiting for him. Uh, so I think a guy worth taking a chance on in the second half. The, uh, uh, the batting average should come around, uh, and we certainly know that there are very strong uh, power and speed skills there that could help him a lot in the second half. And, of course, he was covered by Ray Murphy in his speculator column, which he's calling the all-star team for the second half for fantasy purposes, uh, mostly guys who have had rough first halves that, that should be bouncing back. Nick, are you at all worried about a 66% contact rate for Ricky Weeks? Well, you know, that's not uh, that's way down from where he's been before. Uh, it's, it's the lowest he's shown in his career, really. But, you know, you, you've, got to, you've got to expect, given this guy's career and given his age, that uh, there's just something kind of strange going on there, and that's likely to bounce back. My, my only other concern is uh, when a guy starts having these very anomalous sort of uh, results, especially on the skills, that maybe there's an injury they're hiding that we don't know about. Uh, Ray Murphy also covered in his speculator column the all-star second-half team Miami shortstop Jose Reyes, and boy, there's a there's a name who's been a disappointment as well. Yeah, it really has been. But you know, if you look at uh, if you look at overall, here's a guy that actually earned almost twenty dollars in the first half. The reason he's a disappointment is we were expecting a lot more out of him. So, what can we expect in the second half? Well, he stole twenty bases in the first half. Um, my guess is that, and Ray, Ray suggests that Miami is going to have to play a lot of small ball early in the second half uh, with John uh, Carlos Stanton on the DL. Uh, they're not going to have the power and be able to get the ball out of the park, and that uh, that Bonifacio and Reyes may have to to run a lot more than they did in the first half. I think he's right. In terms of uh, Reyes' batting average, uh, we were looking at a guy with a 90% contact rate, a 1.12 batting eye, um, just a bit of a low hit rate uh, in the first half, uh, 21% over the last week, 26% over the last month. So hit rate has been a bit of a problem. But uh, XBA says that will come back. He should be hitting uh, closer to 290 than 264. Uh, certainly Jose Reyes could have an excellent second half. The only thing that I would worry about, I'm not sure we're going to see a lot of power out of him, but uh, but the, the batting average and the speed, I think, will be there. Consistently throughout his career, he's managed to out-hit his XBA by a few points in a lot of years, and that figures for a guy with his speed. And I think the, uh, another critical issue is going to be, is he going to be able to recover any power at all? He's not hitting the ball hard often enough to, to generate an awful lot of those 
you know, bouncing ball, ground balls through, through for a base hit or finding the gap for an extra base hit or something like that. So um, Jose Reyes seems poised if he can pull it all together. Very definitely. I think he is poised, and I think the team needs him to run. Uh, stolen base right now is SBO is 24%. It's been as high as 48% over the last few years. Uh, I think we'll see his, uh, his opportunities to steal uh, go up considerably in the second half. Staying in Miami, it looks like Heath Bell, who was the closer, then was not the closer, then was the closer, is now soon to be not the closer again after blowing some saves uh, early in July. So right now, Ozzie Gian says they're going to do a bullpen by committee. We've talked about Steve Sishek before, uh, Nick, and Randy Choate's been around the leagues uh, for a long time and got an early season save. But the guy to watch here is Juan Oviedo, formerly known as Leo Nunez. Yeah, if you're sitting there saying, who is Juan Oviedo? It's uh, the former Leo Nunez who's been sus- suspended by Major League Baseball because of uh, an identity issue, uh, using a false identity, uh, and also an age issue. So, you know, you, you talk about a guy coming off of a uh, 90-some game suspension, and, and you hear about that, and you go, what the heck did he do? Well, it wasn't drugs. It wasn't steroids. It was an identity issue, and he should be poised to come back to the Marlins due back on July 23rd. Now, here's a guy who saved a bunch of ball games over the last few years, uh, my guess is he could step right into that closer role and do uh, do extremely well. On the other hand, Nick, from 05 through 09 or so, his XERAs were all up around 5, and, and he, he did get that corrected somehow, and I'll say somehow, in 09, 10, and 11, where he managed to pull that down and have better results. But he's never been a really terrific ERA pitcher. This would pr- pretty much just be a saves sort of play, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, he had, he had a 130 BPV in 2010 and really showed some excellent skills in that year. But but more normal for him has been around 65, 70. So a, a, not an elite pitcher, but a, a very solid kind of pitcher. Given the kind of closing issues they are having over there in, uh, in Miami, uh, I think he could be the guy from the time he comes back through the end of the year. So, uh, but you're right, mainly a saves issue. Not a guy who's going to get a huge, uh, wonderful, tiny ERA or an uh, incredibly small whip. Nor necessarily even a lot of strikeouts. I mean, he's bounced around as low as around the 5 mark, as high as around the 10 mark in 2010, but um, not going to be another Craig Kimbrell where he's going to you know, give you a bunch of bonus strikeouts from that closer spot. Right, that's very definitely true, I think, as well. So as you said, mainly a saves guy. But there's something to be said for saves, guys, especially in 4 by 4 formats or points formats where saves are worth a lot. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again next week. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Harold Nichols is the Director of Skills Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our National League newsman here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move on to the American League. It's BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle. Matt, welcome back to the show going crazy here with no baseball to watch the last four nights well you had the uh, all-star game that was a, a thriller uh, <laughs> i never watched those home run derby you can have them give me the real stuff the games that count well the games that count have started again and in boston there's much rejoicing jacoby ellsbury is back from the dl and uh, ready to go this is a really interesting conundrum here because he went uh, was a top pick in many leagues went for top dollar and uh, we said it was an injury risk based on 2010. His power was a one-time thing. Never had shown that kind of power in the minors. And, and I would stick by that as he comes back here. I think Jacoby Ellsbury is a real risk. It's his right shoulder that he hurt, and I'm not Dr. HQ, but that's your lead shoulder to generate power. He had a 17% home run for fly ball rate in 2011. Never close to that in the majors. 10% was his highest in 2007 when he hit three homers and 116 at-bats. So I think counting on that first-round production is a big mistake. I think that uh, he's not going to be stealing bases with reckless abandon. 
with that hurt shoulder, the last thing he wants to do is dive or slide into second base and re-injure himself. He missed most of 2010 uh, with an injury with his ribs that he had hurt. Uh, I think this guy is is someone, he's 28 years old now. Uh, I, I hate to compare him to Brian Roberts, but I, I just would be really careful. I think he can be a very productive player, but I don't think he's going to come anywhere near the 2011 level that we saw. That does seem unlikely. I, I do like him for stolen bases still, Matt. It may be the only way that he can really provide value. They'll almost certainly put him right at the top of the order and have him run around out there and probably give him every chance in the world. He can maybe uh, reduce the risk of furthering shoulder injury by sliding feet first. I mean, that's a that's a possibility for him. But I think you're right about the home runs. I'd be very surprised if he attains anything like a 139px like he had in 2011 when his previous record was more like 65 or 70. And what's interesting, he didn't steal any bases before he got hurt. And it's only a few games, I realize. But um, you know, his speed index the last two years have been just over 101 and 107. Now, again, 2010 is 101 is a, in a limited sample size of 78 at-bats. But even 2011, his, his speed score was 107. He did steal 39 bases, had 30% stolen base opportunities. I'm just not sure they're going to give him that green light again. I think they want to get him healthy and productive. I think where he can help you also, though, is batting average. I think he's going to be not trying to home, hit a home run. He's going to put the ball in play, and he has shown that skill regularly over the uh, last several seasons with about an 88% contact rate. Uh, you know, average plate patience with a 7% walk rate most of the time. So I think he can help you in batting average, hit you 290-300. I just would be real careful with the other things because I, I think he's going to really come back gingerly and make sure he's healthy. And they're going to want him to do exactly that. Uh, before we move on to another injury returnee, Carl Crawford will be back shortly, they say, although, of course, his rehab has gone anything but smoothly. And when he does, that's going to create some playing time problems, uh, especially when it comes to Cody Ross and Daniel Nava. How do you see that maybe breaking out? Well, I, I think that Ryan Sweeney's on the block as a possible trade target. I think Nava they can send back to the minors if they need to, and I think they'll hang on to Ross. They really like him. It gives them a right-handed bat in the lineup uh, and in the outfield that they can move some guys around. So the, I, I think Ryan Sweeney is going to be the odd man out. I think he'd be Ryan Sweeney would be a great uh, acquisition for another contending team who needs some help in the outfield. The Baltimore Orioles have uh, activated Nick Markakis. He'll come back uh, shortly. And uh, when they get going, he's been out with a handmade bone injury, which is not usually that serious. But Nick Markakis, after a strong early career has settled into not being quite the great player that a lot of people were expecting. Well, the big decline was his, his power from 23 homers in 2007. He's regressed uh, down to 15 homers in 2011 and 641 at bats. And his power index in 2011 was only 75. What's interesting about 2012 is that his power had returned. He had eight homers and 199 at bats. His power index was 124. His home run per fly ball rate is at a career high 17%. So he did show power. Uh, I think in the second half, though, I would guess that he's going to revert back to his previous form, especially with the hemate bone, which is not a serious injury, but still is a hand injury. And there's a, you use a lot of strength in your ligaments and muscles in your hand, obviously, when you're swinging a bat. I would think he'd regress more to his uh, normal. The previous three seasons, his home run per fly ball rate was 8% two years and 6% the third. So uh, I wouldn't expect him to keep up that 17% home run per fly ball rate at all. I think his power next is going to fall by the wayside. The opportunity with Marcakis is also batting average. He only hit 256 so far this year before the injury, and I think he was you know, concentrating on that power stroke. He reduced his contact rate to from 88% to 
but his hit rate also went down to 28%. So we see some batting average upside here, 280, 290 area for Marcakis as that hit rate corrects itself. And again, if I'm coming off a hand injury, I'm probably not going to try to leverage it with all my strength. I'm going to try to make contact, get my stroke back, and that means better batting average. Yeah, I was going to say it looks very much like he he traded bat control for for opening up the swing to get some more power this year, maybe at the request of the club, who knows. But, yeah, he dropped from a 290, 285-ish type of hitter to a 260-type hitter in relatively short order. So it looks like he's either going to be a decent average, decent RBI guy or with with little power, or he's going to have a fair amount of power and a poor batting average, but probably not both. Uh, Luke Scott in Tampa, also back from injury. What do we expect from him? Well, he's uh, swinging for the fences. His skills have declined the last couple of years with poor batting average. The only decent batting average he posted was in 2010 when he hit 284. Uh, he's only hit 205 so far for the Rays. His expected batting average, though, is 257. We see him here with a nice power index that's consistent with his previous career at 132. Just a very low 22% hit rate. His average over his career is about 28%, so we do see upside in hit rate. What's concerning about Scott is he's always been a very patient hitter at the plate, usually with a walk rate over 10%. But in 2012, he's only got a 5% walk rate, so he needs to relax, take his time, get back to his game, because he's still a very effective hitter with that 10% walk rate and hitting 25 homers a year. And, and he's shown he can do that even without reaching 500 at-bats the previous part of his career. So I think this is the kind of guy that the All-Star break can really help. Relax, take it easy. You're not in that daily grind anymore. Come back refreshed and get back to your old skills, which is being more patient and driving the ball. And let those, everything else take care of itself. There is a park effect uh, consideration, though, Matt, is there not? Camden Yards is quite a bit more friendly to left-handed power swingers than Tropicana Field. It is, but Tropicana is not really a bad home run park for lefties, and he's going to play a lot of games in Yankee Stadium, which is very friendly as well, as well as Camden Yards. Toronto's a pretty decent place to hit. So I don't, I see a slight decrease. He's not going to hit 25 homers, but he certainly could get up in the 22-23 range that he posted in 2008. In Seattle, Ichiro Suzuki is having, by his standards, a pretty poor year. He's barely over 260 for a batting average. He's uh stealing bases at a far slower clip than he has in past. He's clearly trying to hang on long enough to get to 3,000 hits. So do you think he'll do that? But in the meantime, in doing it, is he going to really struggle to be a productive player? Well, we certainly see his skills declining, especially in the speed score category that's went down each of the past five seasons, even though his stolen base rate kind of held pretty steady other than 2009. His speed score has been going down. He just was running a little more often. This year, it's interesting, his batting average is 261, so on the surface it looks like his skills have declined, but his expected batting average is still 284. We're seeing a little lower hit rate, 28%, whereas career historically is around 34%. Now, it did decline in 2011. You could argue that as a slap hitter, with his speed declining, he's going to have a lower hit rate. That could be establishing a new norm. Uh, we also see his walk rate going down slightly each year. But what I like about Ichiro is his contact rate has actually improved the last two years to 90%. And that's a skill he's uh, had earlier. His line drive rate in 2012 was 25% is very high. So I still think that he can be an effective player. And at this level, he can reach 3,000 hits. And he can provide a 280 batting average for you and give you a couple dozen stolen bases. You know what? 
concerns me about Ichiro, though, in, in so far as batting average is concerned, Matt, is his ground ball rate has fallen from 60% or near 60% the last four years to all the way down to 47 Now he has gained some of that in line drives, which is good, but he's also hitting 7% more fly balls, and he's just not a power hitter, so those fly balls are almost automatic outs. Do you think he's going to have to maybe refocus on slapping the ball, getting it on the ground, and, and legging out some hits to get back to that sort of 300-level batting average, or is this kind of, as you said before, is his hit rate maybe establishing a new norm? Is that also establishing a new batting average norm in the 270 range rather than the 300 range? Yeah, I would say the upper 270s, 280 range would be his norm. His expected batting average, even when he hit 310 in 2008 and 352 in 2009, his expected batting average was still 284. Uh, the same as in 2012. So I think the 280 range is where you're going to expect him again. Uh, 24, 25 stolen bases. Um, and when he puts the ball in play, which he does, you have a better chance for having a high batting average. You know, he's putting the ball out there. He still does run well. And as we mentioned before we got on this call, actually, you know, he can open up his stroke in the right park at the right time if he wants to try to drive the ball. It's not his natural instinct, but he does have – with that great hand-eye coordination, you know, he could ch- change his approach a little bit here uh, in the second half to, uh, you know, as things evolve, we've seen lots of veteran players change. We have uh, fast hardball pitchers that are going to go more to junk as they get older. You're going to have guys who threw as hard as they could now trying for control. And for hitters that, and catchers in particular, as they get older, we see a lot more power developing in them. And I'm not saying each is going to hit, you know, 10 home runs in the second half or anything. I'm just saying that, he may look to try to drive the ball into the gap as opposed to just slapping it here or there if uh, pitchers are adjusting and taking advantage of his uh, less speed. Uh, Ichiro, of course, was one of the guys that prompted us to think that there may be flaws in the expected batting average formula because he was so consistently out hitting it in 2009 by almost 70 full points. And, of course, it was a, a reflection of his great speed and his ability to put the ball into play. So you can't discount that. But at th- age 38 or whatever he is now, it's a, it's a declining skill to be sure. Matt, uh, one of the things everybody's always looking for in fantasy baseball is – those second catchers who aren't going to kill you. Now, there's a school of thought that says you should just have a guy on your roster who never plays, so you just carry the dead spot. But what about a guy like John Jaso, uh, who might actually give you some help from that second catcher spot? Jaso offers very little power, even though he's got a 125 power index this year. That's not his calling card. His calling card is getting on base. He's got a 14% walk rate this year, very consistent with his history. Hit 278 so far. His expected betting average is actually 307. Uh, he's got a nice 83% contact rate, a little high on the hit rate, 32%. But uh, when you combine his contact rate with his walk rate, you have a 0.91 I ratio, and that's not even the highest he's posted as a professional. In 2010, his eye was an amazing 151, which is in the elite territory. He's got a 26% ground ball rate, or excuse me, line drive rate this year, which I think is uh, showing he's really driving the ball a lot more than the past, and that's why you see the home run per fly ball rate a little higher. So I wouldn't buy him for the power. He may hit a few homers here and there. But I think this is a guy who won't hurt your batting average and get some counting stats. Uh, certainly the type of guy, and especially in simulation formats with that high walk rate, you get a guy with 278 average and 14% walk rate in a simulation format. That's a real nice weapon to have. It is. And I remember something I liked about John Jaso is that when he's in Tampa, Joe Madden often had him hitting at the top of the order 
And when he was asked why, he said he gets on base. He's a real smart base runner. So as many times as he gets on base, he may have a slightly better chance of scoring some runs, the forgotten category we always talk about. John Jaso is one of those kind of guys who very sneakily turns up on a lot of winning rosters, I suspect. And uh, finally, Matt, Rick Porcello of Detroit, uh, a young pitcher a couple of years ago, was kind of a top prospect, and he was never really that good. And this year he seems to be putting it together a little. Well, he's only 24, 25 years old, so he's at the age most pitchers just come up, and he's got three full years of experience, and he seems to be putting that to some use now. His control rate has improved a bit to 2.2. His fly ball rate is down to 24%. He's been unlucky so far with a 36% hit rate, which has caused his ERA to be inflated at 447. His expected ERA is 411. His strikeout rate has gone up. Uh, to 5.3, which isn't great, but still moving in the right direction. Again, this is only a 24, 25-year-old pitcher who's growing right in front of our eyes. Uh, his X-ray is better because of that hit rate. He's getting the ground balls, and if he can keep the ball over the plate and keep that low control rate, as he strikes out more batters, he's going to become much more effective. Yeah, I don't know that he ever is going to strike out that many more batters is the problem. And and, uh, we should point out that very high ground ball rate guys like this, over 50%, often have higher uh, batting averages on balls in play because ground balls have more opportunities to find the holes. And we see that his whip is around 157, despite a relatively low control rate of 2.2 walks per nine. He's allowing a, a lot of base runners, and that's mostly base hits. Is that an issue for a guy like him who... If we assume he's not going to improve his strikeout rate, is sort of a 157-150 type whip his future? I think he can get his whip down to the 1-3-1-4 range as he continues to improve. He's never going to be a staff anchor. He's going to be one of those back-of-the-rotation guys that you don't want to hurt you too bad, and uh, he certainly has the potential to do that. He's certainly a, a Jake Westbrook-type uh, pitcher who's going to have keep the ball on the ground, have a nice strikeout-to-walk ratio, give up his hits, but they're going to be mostly singles. And if the other team bunches him, you think he's gotten hammered. If they spread him out one an inning, then he looks like a great pitcher that day. Uh, so you're going to have some of that inconsistencies. And like I said, he's never going to be the staff ace, but he is developing into a better pitcher. The skills are going the right direction. He's still young enough to advance even further. And, of course, you've got a ground ball pitcher with Miguel Cabrera at third, Peralta at short, Prince Fielder at first, not the 1970 Orioles scooping him out there. And you didn't even mention the rotating second baseman. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so that's And that's something you really have to keep in mind when you're looking at these kind of pitcher situations. If you've got a very high ground ball percentage pitcher, you really would prefer to have him playing in front of a, of a pretty decent ground ball fielding team, and the Detroit Tigers are not that. I would agree with that 100%. Austin Jackson's value of that team is immense with his glove out there in center. Yeah, it makes me think of Cleveland going the ground ball route, but also saying, and we're going to make sure we have really good infield defense as well. Matt, uh, you're going to have your Market Pulse commentary a little later on in the show. What's your topic this week? We're going to compare trade negotiations with a rundown play when you've got a runner hung up between bases. Let me ask you something, Matt. You're from a different part of the world than I'm from, but I remember when I moved, when I was a kid growing up on the on the playgrounds at school, we used to call it in the hot box when you were in a rundown play. Then when I moved to the Vancouver area, they said you're in the pickle or in a pickle. What did you call it when you were growing up? We were pickle. We One of our favorite games as kids was to play pickle, and there's where you had one friend in, running the bases and the other two playing catch. And as you got better, you'd have to throw a high pop or do something to give the runner an opportunity to move forward. But we played pickle by the hour. And uh, proud to be teaching my little leaguers and my son that game to try to teach him how to properly do the rundown. 
unfortunately they get laughing and giggling like we used to and they forget that it should only take one throw. Uh, but uh, when they play that game, it sort of gets them away. But still, it's a good, fun relief from practice to teach them uh, how to generate more throws if you're the runner and how to try to get that runner uh, if you haven't caught between bases. And having fun playing baseball is the most important thing. Matt, thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again next week. Look forward to it, Patrick. Matt Beagle is a columnist at BaseballHQ.com, the official video blogger of Stratomatic and our American League commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our feature interview with Rob Gordon, the minor leagues analyst at BaseballHQ.com, comes up next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. This is Ron Chandler. For those of you who are collectors, here is an opportunity you might not want to miss. We are currently running an auction on eBay for the complete set of baseball forecasters, all 26 editions starting from the Baseball Superstats publication in 1986 right up to the current 2012 book. In addition, this lot includes four other books published by Chandler Enterprises in the 1990s that I had a hand in writing. Forecasting Pitching Careers, The Pitcher's Almanac, The Fantasy Workbook, and The Rotisserie Workbook. 30 books in all. I will personally autograph any or all of them for you as well. And free shipping. These books are rare. This is the first of only two lots that we will auction off that have the complete set. There are only two copies of the 1986 edition left at all. I think the original print one was only 100. After these two lots are sold, we will have three more auctions that will contain every book except the 1986 edition. And that's it. After these five auctions, there will be only one complete set of forecasters left in existence, and that will be on my personal bookshelf. So if rare collections are your thing, head over to ebay.com and do a search for the Baseball Forecaster. The actual title of the listing is Ron Chandler's Baseball Forecaster All 26 Editions Plus 4 More. This auction ends on Monday, July 16th, so don't delay. And thanks for listening. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick David. Pleasure now to be joined by BaseballHQ.com minor league analyst Rob Gordon. Rob, you've been here before. Welcome back. Hey, Patrick. Thanks for having me on the show again. Let's start with the Futures game was played as part of the All-Star Weekend, and everybody told us this is going to be a huge pitchers duel. Wait till you see all these pitchers. And uh, what was it, 17-5 and 29 hits. Uh, what did you think of the game? Well, you know, it was an interesting game. I do think that the, that was all the attention and all the hype, was, was uh, especially on the U.S. side. Was you're going to see these flamethrowers, and you know they were just going to shut everybody down. Um, but you know, I think it, it's not surprising in a game like that that you're going to get you're going to get some runs scored. Seventeen was a lot, you know. And I think that you know the reality was that the the world pitching squad wasn't nearly as deep um, as it has been in previous years, and so that really that really uh, came to the forefront in the game. But the other thing I think was interesting about it was you know looking at the game and looking at the rosters, I think a lot of attention got paid on you know put on the, the U.S. pitchers, but not so much the U.S. hitters, but there's some really good hitting prospects that are coming up right now. Um, you know, and that, to me, especially as a fantasy player, that's even more exciting than the, than the stud pitchers because those, those hitters are the guys that just seem to me to pan out much more frequently than the, than the high-ceiling pitchers do. Well, let's talk about some of those batters. The MVP of the game was Nick Castellanos, a third baseman in the Detroit organization. Uh, three for four, a homer, uh, three RBIs, scored three runs, even drew a walk. He seems blocked by Miguel Cabrera at third base in Detroit for the foreseeable future. What's his likely path? Well, uh, that's an, a 
very interesting question. Um, I mean, he's a he's a real good player. He's not he's sort of so so defensively at third base. He's got a real good bat. He's kind of a handsy. Um, I don't know if you, see, you know the home run that he hit. Kind of a little bit of an awkward swing actually, but just real good hand eye coordination. Um, you know, really really solid hitter. You don't know how much power ultimately he's going to have, but like this guy's hit at every level he's been at. And so, you know, um, could you put him in a corner outfield spot? Um, Maybe I mean you know the, the Tigers have had some pretty bad corner outfielders over the years, so it's not like there would be anything new for them. Um, but you know I don't think I mean I guess one scenario could be you know um, Victor Martinez is going to come back for one more year in his contract next year, and he actually might be back early this year. So you know after that maybe and I don't think Castellanos will be ready until probably 2014, um, maybe late 2013. Uh, you know so maybe they could put. Uh, Cabrera back at first base and DH fielder. Um, that's a possibility. But, um, you know, Castellanos, I don't think, I don't think unless the Tigers really feel Cabrera is slowing down at third base, he's been much better. I've seen a lot of Tigers games this year. He's been much better at third base than I think people thought he was going to be. So I don't think the Tigers are in any rush to, to move Miguel Cabrera off third base at this point. So Castellanos may be the guy that's, uh, that has to find a new position. Of course, the Tigers have some issues with Prince Fielder not wanting to DH, and I guess they probably don't want to alienate him either. So I guess it remains to be seen. Uh, Cabrera has done better than people thought, but he's still not good. Uh, it's uh, it's well, quite he's a good arm, but he's, he doesn't move all that well. Right. Yep. Another uh, star hitter in the Futures game, Will Myers of Kansas City. Everybody's been talking about him. He looked pretty good going two for four with three RBIs. I guess his call-up to Kansas City is more like when, not if. Yeah, and actually, I'm not sure why he hasn't already been called up at this point. You know, I really don't think that, you know, I know that they've got some decent outfielders in Kansas City, but, you know, I kind of like Lorenzo Cain. Jeff Francoeur's got a good, you know, a good defensive profile, good, you know, obviously one of the best arms in the game. But, you know, for, for my money, I, I think they should have Myers up right now and playing right now, and I, I just don't understand why they haven't already made that move. We're past any of the arbitration deadlines. Um, you know, we're past the Futures game. We're past the All-Star game. Now, now is the time. <laughs> Um, you know, Myers is, is, is hitting 327 with a 403 on base percentage and a 676 slugging percentage. He's got 27 home runs and just 310 at bats. And so I, I, I don't know if you can't find a place for that guy in, in your lineup, then, <laughs> then there's something wrong there. Um, you know, and I don't know if, if that means that they end up having to train, trade somebody that they, you know, that they already have in the system. Um, but he, he needs to he needs to come up to the majors and see if he's ready. Yeah, and it's not like he's trying to break into the the Yankees or or trying to break into a a really good team. Kansas City's scuffling, and and they got to see if some of these guys can play, don't they? Yeah, they really have to. I mean, they have to know what they're gonna. You know, what, they they really have to build that nucleus, and they've got a lot of a lot of really young, talented players. Same with you know Jake Odorizzi, the the pitcher. I don't I don't know why they're they're not you know putting those guys into the rotation and calling those guys up and seeing what they have, and you know give them a good couple months of playing time so that when they go into 2013 they can start building that core nucleus of players um so i, I would i wouldn't be at all surprised if both of those guys get called up in, or you know getting major league at bats real soon jonathan singleton who's a first baseman in the astro system was three for four with a couple of runs and an rbi and i have to say jonathan singleton is not a name that jumps out at me off prospect lists yeah he's a, he's a good player and I, you know i think i've been i've been fairly high in him for for a few years now uh, back, you know, when he was in the Philly system, where you know it was interesting because he was blocked when he was in the Philly system by Ryan Howard, so they kind of moved him to the outfield. And, you know, he didn't really profile all that great in the outfield, but now he's been able to, you know, after the trade, um, they've been able to move him back to first base, and he's he's just a real solid. He's not a guy, the kind of guy that's really gonna. His numbers don't aren't huge. Although two years ago, he, he had in 2000. 
out in the game. Um, you know, just a pretty left-handed stroke. Um, just a sort of classical left-handed first baseman uh, with above-average power who should be able to hit for average and draws a fair number of walks. Um, you know, certainly in Houston, again, I think that's a guy that they, you know, uh, he probably won't be up until maybe September, but probably more likely uh, 2013. Um, but I just really like his swing. I think he's gonna. I think he's gonna hit for for average and moderate power. Not not you know 30 home run power, but 20 home run power. Anthony Goes of Toronto, an outfielder, made the defensive play of the game. He went deep into the right center field gap to steal a hit off Oscar Tavares. Uh, uh, but does he have enough bat to be called up for it by the Blue Jays this year? I don't know. I'm, st- I'm still a little bit. Yeah, I think for a long time I was, I was fairly skeptical about Ghost and, and about whether he'd actually be able to hit in the major leagues. But he's really proven, you know, over the last year and a half that he, he's gotten a much to be a much better hitter. There's still not a lot of power there, um, and his game's definitely going to be speed and defense. Um, but you know, uh, I, I, I think he's he's convinced me that he's going to be able to. I think he's hitting 290 right now at AAA. So, um, you know, that's that's. That's pretty good. It's not setting the world on fire, but with that kind of speed and that kind of defensive ability, um, he's going he's gonna to make an impact in the major leagues. And, and I think, you know, long-term, he, he's the kind of guy that could steal you 30 bases and play solid, you know, gold glove kind of defense in, in center field. Um, I mean, who doesn't want that kind of player? I, I, I definitely think he's, he's going to be better than I thought he was. Um, I don't think he's ever going to be an offensive force like some of the players we saw in the Futures game. But I think the speed and the defense are definitely going to enable him to play on a regular basis. And I notice you don't necessarily say he's going to be doing it in Toronto. And the Jays need pitching more than they need hitting or fielding. Colby Rasmus finally living up to expectations in center field. So I guess I'm wondering, do other clubs think enough of ghosts that maybe the Jays could deal him for something useful? Uh, it's possible. You know, they traded for him just recently from um, you know from the from the Phillies. So it's not. It, it, you know, obviously they, they really like him, and I know when uh, we talked a little bit to some scouts down in uh, in the first pitch, um, Arizona, during the fall league, and they, they're pretty high on him, I think. And so I'd be a little surprised if they traded Ghost, just because I, I think they, they're they higher on him than, than I think <laughs> any of the other scouts and other organizations are necessarily. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure how much you'd get back for him um, if other teams aren't quite as high on him as, as your organization is. So... Uh, I'm, I'd be surprised, I guess, if they do trade him, although, you know, they do need pitching. Um, so, well, it'll be interesting to see. Rasmus is finally, you know, like you said, finally living up to expectations. And so they do, there is a little bit of a logjam there, so it'll be interesting to see how they work that out. Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Rob Gordon, the minor league expert from BaseballHQ.com. On the world side in the game, on offense, Jerickson Profire, the uh, seemingly untouchable shortstop prospect for the Rangers, led off the game with a home run and was two for three. Is he really untouchable? They need pitching, and certainly they could get a pretty decent package for Jerickson Profire. Yeah, I would have to say he's untouchable. I mean, he, I think he's... You know, he, he and Will Myers, to me, are, are probably the top two prospects in the minors right now. Uh, you know, the, the fact is that Profar's got, you know, he's, some teams saw him as a pitcher. His arm is that good. And he's got great range. Um, you know, he's, he's, the power is starting to come along now. He's hitting 291, 19 doubles, 10 home runs. Um, you know, and that doesn't sound like it's not like, uh, like off-the-charts numbers, but you have to remember, this guy is 19. He'll be 19 all year, and he's doing this at double-A. He doesn't turn 20 until February. So he's he's just that good. He's got he's got everything you'd want out of you know a real five tool kind of player at a, at a premium position at shortstop. But they do have Elvis Andrus, and so what you know, and Andrus is only twenty three. So 
one of those guys get traded for for pitching? Boy, you'd have to get. And if I were if I were the Rangers, you'd have to get a lot of talent back in order to part with Profar. Um, and I, I I just can't see them letting go of that kind of premium talent. But on the other hand, you mentioned Andrus is only twenty three. He's an established proven performer at the major league level and Profar for all of his uh, skills so far at double A is is not and I'm wondering you know you can't also sit around with a very valuable asset like that not contributing at the major league level because he's blocked at short he's blocked at second I presume that maybe they could move him to the outfield but they've got decent outfielders as well I mean at some point if you're the Texas Rangers do you say yeah he's our shortstop of the future but our shortstop of the future's already playing in, in Andrus. It's, it'd, be, it'd be fascinating to watch over the next couple of years because they've got guys that are blocked on almost every position, except for maybe catcher. Um, you know, because they've got uh, Mike Wolf, just a fantastic third base prospect, is, is obviously blocked. Um, you know, they can't really move Profar to, to second base or to third base either, really. I mean, it'd be wasting his talent to move him to third base. I suppose you could move him to the outfield, but they've got, they got outfielders, too, that are, that are pretty good. You know, they just have an embarrassment of riches there. <laughs> and it would be really interesting to see how they, how they, you know, there was a team that could go out there and grab that, you know, Zach, make that Zach Greinke trade or, or any of the other, you know, uh, pitchers that are, that are on the market right now. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised to see them make a move. I, I guess I would just be surprised to see them trade profile. But like you said, you really don't want this guy stagnating at, at, at AAA for a couple of years uh, until you figure something out. So I, they're kind of, I think they're, you know, they, they've had him on the fast track. And now, do you kind of put the brakes on that, or do you figure out some way to get him in your lineup? I don't know. Yeah, it reminds me of the whole Jesus Montero deal where he, he knew at AAA that he was better than the league, and, and it didn't seem to affect him very well because he just started being kind of a lackadaisical type of guy. And you can see a guy like Profar looks around and says, I'm better than everybody in this league, and I have been for a year and a half, and, and still nothing for me. So, yeah, it's a it's a tough thing to manage. Uh, the Korean player, Jae-hoon Ha, the Cubs organization was two for two. He had a home run to right. But again, he's blocked by Starlin Castro. So what what do we do with him? Yeah, well, I think he's, he's actually played, you know, some off-field too. And so I, I think long-term the Cubs probably see him more as a center fielder at this point. So, you know, although they do have other, they have off-field prospects too. And so um, the Cubs seem, the Cubs seem, the Cubs, there are many more opportunities in the Cubs. You know, you could easily, you know, have him play a second base position or, or move him to the outfield and have him play in the outfield. Um, you know, I don't think I, I I don't see him necessarily as the kind of guy who's going to create a a backlog like that. I don't think you know he's a good talent, but and he's exciting to watch. He's got good speed, good defense, but I I really don't see him as like a a superstar kind of kind of player. And so it seems to me you have more flexibility with a player like that. You can you can move him around more easily. You're not, you know, like with Profar, doesn't if Profar doesn't play shortstop, that's just a shame because he's so good and he's got such a strong arm. Um, where with you know somebody like Ha, I mean, if, he might be more of a like a utility kind of guy. If you at least break it in, you know what I mean. Like until right. he finds his regular position. So I'm I'm not as concerned about him being blocked. And uh, St. Louis Cardinal prospect Oscar Tavares, I mentioned he drove the ball that uh, Anthony Goes caught in the uh, gap. Uh, supposedly, according to reports, uh, I didn't get to see the batting practice, but apparently he looked really good in batting practice. Mind you, we can say that of a lot of players over the years. But he has a kind of a violent swing like Vladimir Guerrero or, or Alfonso Soriano. It's it's a very sharp, aggressive swing. Is he a legitimate prospect? He sure seems to be climbing the lists. Yeah, no, I definitely I'm 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 a big fan. You know, um I've seen him play a number of times and he does he does have a very aggressive swing. I think at some point
argue with the numbers. He had 386 in the Midwest League last year, and this year he's hitting. You know, he didn't have much power last year, although I think people projected that he would. And this year he's hitting 324 with you know, 15 or 16 home runs already. So um, he's just a really exciting player. Really, you know, just like you said, the swing's a real aggressive swing. But he's one of those guys like like uh, you know Guerrero or Soriano. I think he's only struck out 44 times this year. So yeah, he's got an aggressive swing, but he's making he's you know. He, He's got good eye-hand coordination and can put put the barrel on the uh, on the ball and make good contact. And so, yeah, I don't. I mean, I he he may have to make some minor adjustments to that, but I, I definitely think he's a legit prospect, and I'm really excited about uh, about his potential. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Rob Gordon from BaseballHQ.com, talking about the prospects in the uh, futures game held recently as part of All Star festivities and. Rob, we wouldn't expect uh, to talk much about pitching in a 17-5 game, but nonetheless, there were good pitchers in that game, and which ones impressed you? Well, I really like Jose Fernandez. I mean, this, this guy is just, you know, not only an amazing story uh, of, of how he was able to defect from Cuba and sort of the trials and tribulations of how, how that happened and everything, but he's just, he's just physically impressive. I mean, you know, you, you, sometimes you see these guys like Tyler Skaggs. Tyler Skaggs has got rid this up, but it's kind of a long, loose, lanky, left-hander. Jose Fernandez is just real solidly built, really physically talented, really athletic, um, you know, attacks hitters with a 92 to 95 mile an hour fastball and nice hard breaking ball. I like the hard breaking ball as opposed to the kind of the big looping breaking ball. Uh, he's also got a slider and a changeup, and he's just been fantastic this year and really, I think, probably climbed up the prospect charts more than more than any other player out there. Um, so he, he was really impressive. Obviously, the U.S. side, even though they did not necessarily pitch as well as you might want them to, just the physical tools of some of the players. Obviously, Dylan Bundy, the fourth uh, overall pick in the draft last year, just had fantastic professional debut so far. Um, even better than advertised, and, and you know, I think definitely, I think he's our number two prospect at this point. Um, so for a guy to be in high school last year and then pitch in the in the futures game, um, and then be the number two prospect, he, he's just really physically impressive. Um, Taiwan Walker, again, another really athletic-looking guy. Uh, real physical, only 19 years old, and he's already at Double A. Um, and, and like I said, Tyler Skagg. So those are the four guys that really stood out for me for the U.S. side. I read in uh, Baseball America that a lot of scouts think that Fernandez might even be better or more advanced than Garrett Cole or Danny Hudson. And Hudson's supposed to be in the big leagues this year with Seattle. Do you concur? Yeah, I think I don't know about. I don't know if he's more advanced than than Hulton. I would say he's got he certainly has better stuff. I think Hulton Hulton's a pretty savvy pitcher. Um, you know he he came from a pretty good college program and he that was his mo was that he you know he had good stuff but he really knew how to set up hitters and how to and you know how to outthink hitters and um, you know how to locate his stuff. So I don't know if he's more more advanced in that sense, but I definitely think he's got he's got higher upside. Um, and and I you know. Every time I watch Garrett Cole pitch, he, you know, I remember back to the uh, the Rising Stars game last year in, in Arizona, and he gave up two long turns in the first inning. And you look at the you look at the radar gun, and it's like you know it's 100 miles an hour, 101 or whatever, and that's impressive and everything. But it just doesn't. The results don't always seem to be there for him. Mm-hmm. So if you ask me to compare Jose Fernandez versus Garrett Cole, I I think Fernandez is actually probably a little bit more polished at this point than than Cole is. Cole doesn't seem to have that pitchability. Um, you know, he's got the raw tools and, and he's got the ideal size. He just doesn't have that pitchability yet that, that Jose Fernandez and Danny Hudson seem to have. Moving on to other prospects, 
Uh, Rob, three of the best in recent memory have been Mike Trout, Bryce Harper, and Matt Moore, all of sort of of a, of a similar generation. We thought, man, this is like going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread. Trout certainly has emerged as a, as a tremendous, tremendous ball player. Harper is maybe not quite at that level this year, but has all the tools. But Moore has really been a disappointment. So let me talk about these guys. But before we get to specifics, if you are drafting a 5x5 five five fantasy team in a dynasty format this winter, would you draft Harper or Trout first overall? Oh, I would go with Trout. I mean, it's, you know, I know that there's always a learning curve, and so you know, advanced scouts are going are gonna to pick away at, uh, at Mike Trout and try to figure out where his weaknesses are, but I haven't seen any so far. Um, you know, this, this guy, he looks, you know, again, going back to the, the Arizona Fall League last year, he looked physically just exhausted there. He did not look like it, the same kind of player that, ever, that we had seen before. But that, that sort of spring in a step that Joy sort of that he, that he had shown previously seems to be there every day. He, he seems to be getting more comfortable, more confident every day. He can do everything on the baseball field. So, I mean, I think people were initially thinking he might be like a, a 20, 50, a 20 home run, 50 stolen base guy. He might be more of like a, a 30, 50 guy, you know, with the power that he's shown so far. So I, as much as I like Bryce Harper, I would definitely take Mike Trout right now. Well, that's right now. Let me say in five years' time, uh, you're sitting at the draft table in 2017 or you're imagining that situation. Who do you think gets drafted earlier or for more money in an ordinary roto auction in 2017 once they've both had five years of playing time underneath their belts, Harper or Trout? Well, that's a, I think that's a, it's a good question. I think that's an interesting question because I think my sense is if, if, if Mike Trout continues to hit like this, is are you going to continue to have him be your leadoff hitter? I'd be surprised. I mean, I could see him easily moving into like a, a three spot in a rotation. I mean, in, in a batting order, and as a result, not stealing nearly as many bases. So he might be more of a 330 home run guy. Where at, the, at that point, then you know, I don't think Harper's profile has changed. I still think he's a 300 hitter with the potential to hit 50 home runs. So at that point, I could see, I could see, you know, Harper being the guy that you know in 2017. I wouldn't be at all surprised if. It, I did mention at the outset of this part of the conversation that Matt Moore has been a disappointment. His stuff looks great, but he's walking a lot of guys. Do you think this is kind of a minor bump in the road, or, is, or did we just overestimate him in the first place? No, I think it's a bump in the road. I mean, you got to remember that he's still very young. Um, you know, he has struggled with control in, in the past. Um, you know, there, um, in 2009, he walked 70 in 123 innings, so... You know, the control has been an issue previously. Of course, he also struck out 176 that inning that year, and so 176 strikeouts in 123 innings. I think we tended to overlook the walks because the strikeouts were so off the charts. Um, you know, it, the fact is he's walked 50 in 99 innings so far, so it doesn't matter what level you play at. If you walk 4.4 per nine, you're, you're going to get yourself into difficulty. Um, but, he had, you know, last year I think he, he, he walked only 20 or 30, so he has shown that he owns that skill of control. He can, you know, he, he can when he's on have good control, and so I do think it's more a matter of him making some adjustments and maybe trusting his stuff a little bit more. Um, you see a lot of young pitchers come up and they try to be too fine. They try to hit the outside corners. They get they get hit, you know, a little bit, and then they start second guessing themselves. They fall behind on the counts, and then they have to come in. And it doesn't matter how good your fastball is. If a, if a major league hitter knows you're coming in with a fastball, they're going to hit up. So I really think it's more a matter of him just getting his feet wet, you know, and, and sort of making some minor adjustments. I think I think the, the potential for Matt Moore is still very good. 
You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt and Rob Gordon, minor league analyst at BaseballHQ.com. And Rob, you recently, just before the All-Star break, published your Top 50 Prospect Update, and uh, that's always really interesting because you've had a half a season of guys in the minors, some of them moving up levels and continuing to perform, others not so much. Uh, who are your biggest gainers on your list? Well, Jose Fernandez, definitely. He wasn't even in our Top 100. He just missed out. Uh, and he jumped all the way to number 15. So, um, so that was the, that was probably the biggest jump on the list. Um, Billy Hamilton, the, the you know exciting shortstop who we saw in the Futures game uh, for the Reds, moved up from from 87 to 28. I'm still not entirely convinced that he's going to hit as a, as a professional. Um, he's got kind of one of those slash and dash kind of approaches, but the, well, the the speed is just phenomenal, and you know the fact that he's got 104 stolen bases in like 82 games is just ridiculous. So. So he continues to, to come up the list pretty quickly. Um, Oscar Tavares, who, again, we mentioned from St. Louis, the outfielder, went from 78 to number 12 on the list. Nick Castellanos uh, from the Tigers moved up pretty pretty significantly. Um, Matt Barnes, the right-handed pitcher from, from the Red Sox, wasn't ranked last year, uh, at the beginning of the year, sorry, and um, he moved up to number 19. He's just had a fantastic professional debut. And the last guy who really made a, a significant impact on, on the list was Jackie Bradley, um, outfield from, uh, outfielder from Boston, who went from not being ranked to being number 25. So those are the guys I think really moved up the biggest on the list. It's always interesting because in the middle of the season, it's hard to, you've got, you know, half a season of data to work with and, and, and games that you've seen, um, you know, and so is a guy having a good half season or is it really a, a, a true breakout? And what I like to look at is, is a guy been able to do that not only at whatever level he started at, but did he get a promotion and then continue to play at that level? And most of these guys have, they've been promoted already and they've that is really important because it indicates that the organization is interested in seeing they believe what was going on at at the first level, and now they want to see what's going on at the second level. And that's a vote of confidence, especially by a good organization, is is something that we can't uh, underestimate. You know, if 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 you're in the Tampa organization, and especially if you're a pitcher, and they want to move you up because they like what they see, they're really good at that, and and it's a real vote of confidence, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that. And that's- you know, so there are some guys that are like, well, they're having a really good year, but the team hasn't moved them up yet. What? Why not? What? What's going on there, right? Right. So I'm a little bit more skeptical. I want to, I, like, I think like the teams, I want to see a little bit more of a body of evidence before I sort of jump on the bandwagon. How about some guys that fell on the list? Who are the big names that really uh, seem to have taken a, a dive? Well, the, the, probably the biggest name is not not going to surprise anybody. Is Mike Montgomery from from Kansas City? Um, you know, I think last year he got a little bit of a pass, and you know, he, he struggled with his control last year, and I think everyone thought that was maybe just a, a minor blip, uh, um, but not looking like that anymore. He, he's still really struggling. So he went from number 29 on the list to, you know, at the beginning of the year to completely off our, our top 15. I'm, I mean, I would probably put him still as a top as a, as a top 100 prospect, but, uh, you know, he, he got demoted. He got sent back down to double A. Um, so, again, the organization. 
without much power is a lot different than a 300 hit, you know, hitting shortstop without much power. So he, he's dropped down the list quite a bit, too. You mentioned Billy Hamilton of the Reds, 104 bags, which is ridiculous. I mean, he could he could end up with close to 200 at the rate he's going. Uh, the question is, do you think that this tremendous performance in the minor leagues gives him any chance of a call-up to the Reds? If he does get called up, does he have to move to center field because he's so woeful with the mitt? And if he manages that, can he reach base often enough in the major leagues to steal a lot of bases and help his the, the Reds and fantasy owners? Yeah, I mean, I'd be interested to see what they do with him. If I if I were the Reds, I'd, I'd call him up and and make him a you know like a an outfielder at this point and, and outfielder slash pinch runner, right? Um, you know, there's no reason why you couldn't put him into the game. And the, I mean, I think you know everybody knows he's stealing, right? And so he's he's that fast. I mean, same with Mike Trout. Mike, I mean, I don't know how many times Mike Trout's been caught so far, but I think his 26 stolen bases like got caught four times, right? So. Why not have that guy on your on your bench, and you can you know you can work with him. I don't think he's going to play shortstop. I mean, I think Dusty Baker would go crazy if he if he's at shortstop. Um, you know, he just doesn't have the arm strength to, to play the position. It's not that he's he's got the range; he just doesn't have the arm strength to play the position. Um, and you saw that in the, in the futures game, the throw you know that he, that he made from shortstop. That, that's right. It just doesn't seem like that's going to work. But you know, um, calm up as a as a pinch as a pinch runner um, and, and utilize that speed. You know, I think he's going to be a transitional player for for the, for the time being, or until until they figure out whether he can play center field or, or an outfield position, uh, and whether he can hit in the major league. So, I don't know. Be, he's going to be a really interesting. He's a divisive player. He's one of those kind of guys that either you're convinced he's going to be good just because of the speed, they'll figure out some way to make that play, or you're convinced he's just not going to be able to hit. Give us a, maybe three or four names of guys who are probably going to get called up in the second half earlier rather than later, not a September situation, and who actually might contribute to uh, fantasy success? Well, obviously, you know, if somebody like Billy Hamilton gets called up, I would snag him very quickly because he's got that, you know, even if he is just a, a pinch, a pinch run, especially in a deep league, if, he's, if he can steal you, you know, 15, 20 bases between now and the end of the season, um, that'd be something you definitely want to take a look at. Like, you know, Will Myers, I, I, I think, um, without a doubt, if he, you know, when he gets called up, um, I'd be I'd be very excited about uh, about trying to get him on your team. Um, one guy you know I think is um, it would be interesting to see. If he, I don't know if he's going to get called up for for the um, you know September or, or before that. But Tony Singrani is a left-hander um, from Cincinnati. I really like his stuff. He's he's just been a really exciting prospect to watch develop, and um, just I think you know, a lot of a lot of strikeouts, and so he could easily come up and, and maybe contribute uh, there. Certainly some pitch you know, you could see some pitchers. That, you know, I don't know if uh, if the Yankees are going to do anything with Major Penuelos and Dylan Batonsos. I, I think they've really struggled in the um, in the starting rotation, so, so maybe they look at those guys as relievers possibly. All right, and uh, before we let you go, Rob, uh, tell us what's uh, on the BaseballHQ.com prospect coverage uh, agenda for the balance of the season. Well, we got quite a bit of stuff coming up. So this weekend, um, uh, Saturday, uh, Brent Hershey's got a he went to the Double A All Star Game, so he's going to have a lengthy column there about uh, about some of the prospects he saw. So I'm looking for, really looking forward to that. I and mean, we bolstered our our um, minor league coverage quite a bit with a couple of new writers. Um, so we're going to have some other features on there. Obviously, the weekly uh, minor league updates that, that I do. We've got a trade tracker that we're we're kind of piloting uh, this year, and so trying to keep track of some of the minor league prospects that have gotten traded and, and give you know give subscribers some some ideas about um, you know how they might fit into their new organizations. Um, Jeremy Deloney does our, our daily call-up reports. Uh, once we get nearer to September, we'll have an AL and 
Well, I know your batting average on that score is uh, enviable, uh, shall we say, and uh, we'll really look forward to the coverage throughout the balance of the year. Prospects so important in keeper leagues now with everybody having all the information about the established players. Rob, thanks very much for joining us. We'll catch up with you again at least once more during the year. Great. Thanks for having me on the show, Patrick. Rob Gordon is a minor league analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Our regular commentaries are coming up next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. There's a long drive way back in center field. Way back, back. It is Second Dolby is able to go to third. Willie Mays just brought this crowd to its feet with a catch. Which must have been an optical illusion to a lot of people. HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. We have Matt Beagle on deck with his market pulse. BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler is in the hole with Master Notes. And leading off, it's our Minor League Minute. BaseballHQ.com Minor League expert Rob Gordon comes back to tell us about Yankees outfield prospect Tyler Austin. The New York Yankees look to have gotten a steal when they selected outfielder Tyler Austin in the 13th round of the 2010 draft. Austin was considered a good prep player and participated in a number of showcase events, but after falling out of the first few rounds, he slipped all the way to round 13, where the Yankees signed him for a paltry $130,000. Austin has done nothing but hit since turning pro and is finally making believers out of scouts and analysts. After playing in parts of three minor league seasons, the 20-year-old Austin now has a career line of a 330 batting average, a 408 on base percentage, a very impressive 585 slugging percentage. Austin is a professional hitter with above-average power and a willingness to use the entire field. He has decent plate discipline and above-average speed, giving him the potential to be a 2020 player once he reaches the majors. Defensively, Austin runs very well and has a strong throwing arm, strong enough to handle right field, although he's also seen action at first base and third base in the past. After participating in the 2012 Futures game, Austin was promoted to high A in the Florida State League, where he'd get a better test. Still, Tyler Austin has been very impressive so far this year and is now hitting 317 with a 404 on base percentage and a 593 slugging percentage. He has 22 doubles, 14 home runs, and 17 stolen bases and 268 at-bats. If Tyler Austin can duplicate these results at high A and double A, he will continue his rapid ascent up the top 100 prospect charts. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues all season long. Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, and Colby Garropy have reports and updates on organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Jeremy's call-up reports this week have looked at Baltimore power-hitting first base prospect Joe Mahoney and a bunch of scrubs. (laughs) Not always prizes, but there's going to be more coming in the second half. You can bet on that. So if you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's the Market Pulse with BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle talking this week about why a good trade negotiation is kind of like a rundown play. One of my favorite axioms in life is the golden rule. Do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. Sounds so easy, but when it gets time for competition, we all tend to get greedy when it comes to trade talks. We're entering the most important part of the year, the home stretch, the second half, where there's going to be lots of trade offers made as people jockey for position to get that yoo-hoo shower. In this frenzy, we tend to overreact, overvalue our players, 
and make ridiculous offers sometimes. I've seen some of the nicest guys make some of the lamest offers and then cause hard feelings in leagues. We have to know that we undervalue our own players a little bit. Start with a reasonable offer. Just like a rundown play where the optimal situation is one throw back to his original base to get the base runner. In trade talks, if you've made a good offer, it shouldn't be an extended, protracted negotiation. The longer it goes, the harder it gets, the more hard feelings that you cause. If you make a really decent offer up front, maybe one counter coming back is all it would take to finish the deal. Most of the time, they'll take the offer you make if it's a good one, and you really thought about their team as well as your team. But if they have a little different idea and they counter-offer with something reasonable or something close to what you've offered, that can seal the deal. You've got a deal done quickly, easily, and you've created a good relationship for future dealings. And after all, that's the most important thing because you're only going to make deals that better your team to achieve your goal. And if you're in a perpetual league, you want those managers to be your friends and be receptive to your trade offers. You don't want to say, oh, no. Here comes this guy again with an offer. It's going to be a long, protracted negotiation where we're arguing back and forth. Nobody wants to deal with that, and those managers end up making less deals and getting punished for it. Create that long-term goodwill by thinking of their team before you make the offer. Make a reasonable offer from the beginning. Really rake it through the coals. Find someone you can run the offer by in another league or something to make sure that the offer you're making is reasonable and you're not overvaluing your players without knowing it. Like I said, like a good rundown, a good trade negotiation is one offer and either an acceptance or a counteroffer. All you need is one throw. With a market pulse for Baseball HQ and HQ Radio, I'm Matt Beagle. Matt Beagle's columns on a variety of fantasy baseball topics appear regularly at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about better alternatives for picking the All-Star teams. With this week's Major League Baseball All-Star game, we got to watch the best of the best, as mostly chosen by the fans. Yes, it was a little one-sided, but I'd prefer that over a tie any day. While this was an exhibition, it does decide home field advantage for the World Series. I've always thought it odd that player selection for this important game was left in the subjective hands of such highly biased people as, um, well, us. Who are we voting for? The best overall players or the best players of the first three months of 2012? Players who deserve the honor or hometown favorites? Of course, then add in the lack of limits to how you can vote and how often. Leaving it in the hands of the fans without specific directions means that we end up with a mess, yielding nearly meaningless results, as far as I'm concerned. Of course, sports writers are no better when it comes to the major end-of-season awards or even the Hall of Fame. It has all become so subjective. Maybe that's the point. Controversy provides column fodder. But I prefer definitive methods for determining success. I want objectivity. When it comes to sports, we are already measuring performance with statistics, so why not use something that is both definitive and objective? For fantasy leaguers, particularly rotisserie players, we have dollar values. Are they perfect measures of overall baseball performance? Of course not. But to measure performance for this particular game, 
They are perfect. It's like measuring wealth using money. This past week's column I wrote for USA Today looked at the rotisserie all-stars of 2012. While it provided the necessary objectivity regarding value, it still did not answer one of the questions, and added one more. Should the All-Stars be the best overall players, or the best players of the first three months? That question is actually answered somewhat by the second question. Should a fantasy All-Star be the best player at his position, or the player who has been the most profitable? I think there's no contest. Ryan Braun and Mike Trout are both earning about $35 in roto value thus far this season. But Braun is not likely winning his owners any half-season fantasy titles on his own. He is earning about what we paid for him. He is a building block, for sure, but he is not a difference maker. Trout, whose price tag includes about $30 of profit, is likely on many standings leaders right now. And since success has to be measured in fantasy championships, the All-Stars have to be those players who are pushing their teams closer to that goal. It's all about profitability. So the current All-Star crop includes players like Carlos Ruiz, who is providing his owners with about $23 of profit, Mark Trumbo and Jason Kipnis, both clearing about $20. On the pitching side, R.A. Dickey leads all starters with $32 worth of profit. Fernando Rodney? undrafted in most leagues and currently earning $41. If that is not the definition of all-star, I don't know what is. The complete list of profit all-stars appears in the article on usatoday.com. Go check it out. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler. Ron Chandler writes a weekly column every Friday at BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about in-season use of his extreme regression drafting technique. Ron also has a weekly chat every Wednesday morning at 11 Eastern at usatoday.com and discusses his columns and other topics in the subscriber forums at baseballhq.com. You can get Ron's master notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with a free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. You just have to go to baseballhq.com and sign up. Of course, Ron also brings his master notes here to Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of July the 14th. Welcome back to the second half of the fantasy baseball season. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 26. And please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes and rate our show. We could use those five stars. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with Rob Gordon, minor leagues analyst at BaseballHQ.com. It's always great to talk with Rob, and boy, he sure knows his stuff with those prospects. I also want to thank our other guests from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch analysts were Harold Nichols and Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse columnist this week. And our Master Notes commentator, as always, was BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler. We have some really great features this week at BaseballHQ.com. Ray Murphy's speculator column on the all-second-half all-star team. Matt Cedarholm's Market Pulse column looks at possible free agent pickups. And Brent Hershey looks at prospects who've been traded this year to new organizations, like Matt Dominguez, who went from Miami to Houston in the Carlos Lee deal. Plus, we'll have all our regular features on playing time, facts and flukes, buyer's guides, and more. I'm Patrick Davitt. My batting buyer's guide appears every Tuesday. I recently covered the first half leaders in hard contact index. 
And I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember to check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>